the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the program. Coming up we'll be looking at the flooding, also Japanese encephalitis, but uh, in fact there was a press conference just held just a short while ago with the Prime Minister and the Premier, and the Premier making the point about the assistance available. But he also made the point too that uh, they, he thinks that the government has learned a lot since Lismore. We've learned a lot. We've come a long way. If you look at uh, northern ri- in, the, in the northern rivers, the time it took to get recovery centres uh, uh, was weeks. Here we are, one week after the event, recovery centres established, Service New South Wales in town, and the Service New South Wales tends to be travelling all through the central west, giving that care and support for those people who need it. So all that and a whole lot more coming up on the program. As I said, Japanese encephalitis, a new outbreak discovered in the Murray region. Also some warnings in Queensland as well about uh, Japanese encephalitis there and uh, watch out for the mozzies. So more on that shortly from the Minister Dougald Saunders in about uh, half an hour's time on the program. But uh, first up today, let's stay with the flooding because those floodwaters, of course, they're spreading inexorably throughout the river systems in the south of uh, New South Wales. Uh, namely uh, the Murrumbidgee, the Murray and the Lachlan. The cleanups beginning in Forbes and Ugarra, but the flooding is still critical and, uh, in fact, setting records in Condoblin and heading to set some records in Deniliquin as well. Our reporter, Jess Clifford, is in Ugarra and joins us now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So the PM and the Premier there uh, giving uh, giving a sort of uh, a snapshot of where we are in terms of assistance and, uh, and insurance and a range of issues today. Yeah, that's right, Michael. So we saw the Prime Minister fly in earlier this morning and and the Premier also a short time ago. Of course, on Friday, they announced that the locals here would be eligible for a $1,000 grant and $400 for each child. So that's just for your everyday person. Uh, They also announced on Friday that primary producers would be able to access $75,000 in grant funding as well. Uh, Today, we heard that small businesses and not for profit organisations here at Ugara will be able to access grants of $50,000. Now, 25000 of that, uh, they can basically walk into Service New South Wales, which is set up at the showground here in Ugara, and, and walk out the door with that. Uh, and the other 25000 will be contingent on, of course, receipts provided. And what we were really hearing from locals off the back of that, though, is that while they have welcomed this kind of funding, uh, obviously, they're, they're grateful for anything just at the moment, as this is still so fresh. And, you know, people are really just trying to put food on the table and clothes on their back at this point. They did sort of make the point that, you know, this is not going to go a long way. $1,000 for somebody that's just lost their home. Uh, probably isn't going to get them very far. And, and likewise, for small businesses, and primary producers, you know, 75000 might put food on the table for a year, uh, but it's certainly not going to be able to replace that million-dollar canola crop that's been completely destroyed. So, uh, Yes, you know, absolutely. The sort of damage we're hearing. So you, you've managed to have a chat to a few farmers, a few landholders as well, I gather. Yeah, that's right. So we've, we've been chatting to, you know, a variety of people here today, lots of people wanting to, you know, chat with the, the Prime Minister and the Premier about the situation here. And like I said, I mean, the primary producers in particular, they're quite concerned that, yeah, this $75,000 grant, remembering, of course, that they've come off the back of droughts and COVID and all that sort of thing, uh, you know, it just isn't probably going to go far enough. And 
the politicians who were here today said, you know, they appreciate that this is not a forever solution, uh, but, but they didn't promise any more funding as such. The Prime Minister just sort of said that, that this is what they can provide right now. So that's that's where that was at. That That's right. It, that was the tenant of what he was saying. He's, uh, you know, this is what they can provide. And um, But despite that, the Premier is still saying they are, you know, endeavouring to, to build back towns like, uh, like Forbes and Ugarra as well though so he's still sticking to that commitment yes that's right it's something that he was asked last week you know we're looking at places like Lismore where they've instigated buyback schemes for certain areas here they're sort of saying you know that what the community is overwhelmingly saying is that they want to build back Yugara where it is and I'm sort of standing on the main street it is hard to imagine that you could pick up this this whole town and move it to higher ground. I'm not sure where you would move it Well, there's it not, to, but... <laughs> not a lot of higher ground around, is there? It's a floodplain, <laughs> really, yeah. It's very much floodplain and mm. farmland. So, you know, what the Premier and the, the Prime Minister were saying, you know, is that these sort of towns, they need to look at ways to make them more resilient. We spoke to the Mayor as well, who sort of said, no matter how big your levy was, uh, no matter what sort of preparations were done, this particular flood that moved through Yugara, nothing would have stopped it. Uh, even places on higher ground that don't normally flood were flooded. Mm. So, you know, it's a it's a very difficult situation and I'm sure that, that will develop further as we get further into the cleanup. Has there been any discussion amongst the locals or when you're discussing issues with people about climate change, about, you know, this you know, these sorts of rain events and this sort of flooding, first time or worst ever in many places, worst ever certainly for... 70 years that, uh, you know, concerned about this happening again and again as a result of the changing climate. Yeah, look, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people and it seems to be the norm now. We get these off-handed comments, well, you know, that's climate change for you. And uh, I think people generally are saying that they've never really seen anything anything like this. So I think certainly it's on people's minds that climate change may be having an impact on the places that they're living. Uh, and it's certainly something that they've been acknowledging, at least the people that I've spoken to today, yes. But they've probably got other things on their mind as a priority at the moment, I would imagine, rather than those sort of, of theoretical course. issues. Yes, I mean, I'm still watching people, you know, really just sweeping out. It's it's still patches of water lying around, you know, people still trying to, you know, move their animals and their stock and that sort of thing. So, you know, I think definitely a lot on people's minds. I know insurance is another big one that, that's been playing on people's minds as well. So, yes, lot, lots going on here, Michael. Yeah, on that issue, let's uh, let's hear a little bit. Thanks for that, Jess. Thanks, we appreciate it. I know you're busy, so no I'll worries. let you get back to it. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Jess Clifford in Ugaura there, and as we were hearing there at the press conference, uh, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was asked about the sort of support. I think he was asked about maybe possibly giving more support. Let's hear a little bit about what the uh, Prime Minister had to say earlier today. Well, we're providing what support we can uh, to people uh, at this time. Uh, these, uh, these grants are, are available uh, for people, and we're providing that support. And he was also asked about the uh, sort of thorny issue of insurance, whether people are insured or how they can be insured or how the government might uh, view that issue as well. Here's what he had to say on insurance. Look, this is a, a challenge issue of insurance and I know that uh, Murray Watt, our Emergency Services Minister, is talking to insurance companies about uh, these issues. Uh, this is a, an ongoing challenge 
uh, that we have to deal with. Uh, it's one of the things that we heard again uh, today about is that so many people uh, haven't been able to get insurance because of uh, the high premiums uh, which are there. It's something that uh, the government uh, is attempting to deal with over a period of time. We'll continue to engage with the insurance industry. Now, also at the press conference was the Premier of New South Wales, Dominic Perrottet. Now, he uh, also uh, wanted to make some points about the sort of assistance that's provided by New South Wales and the insurance question as well. It's not just those one-off payments for individuals and households. There is a range of financial support packages available. So for primary producers, up to $75,000, which is Commonwealth and state funded. There are a range of initiatives in place, um, and we will do everything we can to ensure that everyone gets back on their feet. Now, in relation to insurance companies, um, I'll just make the point that I've spoken to last week, the um, Insurance Council um, of Australia, and insurance companies should put people before profits. So people before profits is uh, what uh, the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, has been saying in regards to insurance and insurance companies. Let's uh, let's see uh, how that pans out. Also, the Premier also hit back at criticism that some locals felt that the government response uh, in helping people in those flood-affected towns like Yugara and Forbes was too slow. Well, I'd, I'd say that's untrue. I mean, go and speak to the people of Yagawara um, during this period of time and, and what I've sensed on the ground last week um, and this week um, is that uh, people are very appreciative of state and Commonwealth government members being on the ground. Um, and that gives hope, that gives confidence that we're going to rebuild. Um, now, um, you know, obviously last week, you know, Mr Jones uh, was, was upset. And, 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 and why wouldn't you be? It's, it's been a, um, a, a very horrendous time. And I spoke to him this morning. Um, and uh, he's going well. Um, and he also raised with me that uh, the cleanup is going incredibly um, well, also. So um, I, I think I, I think you know that when, when towns and communities go through such tragic events, um, there's obviously emotion and, and people are upset. But our commitment from the Commonwealth and state level, Prime Minister, and the Premier, and all the ministers and local members and council, is that we're going to rebuild and, and we'll be with these, this community every step of the way. That's the Premier Dominic Perrottet. Now, on the issue of speeding up the response and the clean-up, uh, uh, Premier Perrottet also made the point that he thought the government had learned a lot since the Lismore floods. We've learned a lot. We've come a long way. If you look at uh, northern ri- in, the, in the northern rivers, the time it took to get recovery centres uh, uh, was weeks. Here we are, one week after the event, recovery centres established, Service New South Wales in town, and the Service New South Wales teams will be travelling all through the central west, giving that care and support for those people in need of that's the Premier Dominic Perrottet at the press conference there, which was held in Yugara. Also, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was there talking about assistance and insurance and uh, also the speed uh, at which uh, the assistance uh, was there getting to people and responding to some of those issues raised. It's 16 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, still on the flooding response, the New South Wales Minister for Regional Transport and Roads, Sam Faraway, has announced 200 additional crew members to assist with the repairs in regional areas as flooding eats away at road networks. Many of these crews will be based out of Dubbo, Orange and Narandra to be sent out as needed, though. Mr Faraway says the crews, extra machinery and contractors will be arriving in the region next week. 
We have developed a plan to roll out a 200 strong crew into the Central West and Murrumbidgee regions as of today uh, that will be deployed in a response and restore phase over the course of the next few weeks. This will include liaising directly with impacted local councils throughout the regions, uh, whether that be Cabon, Parks, Forbes, the Lachlan Shire, uh, whether it be around the Narandra Shire as well. Uh, it is clearly evident that uh, 2022 has hammered our roads across the region uh, and with the recent flooding and natural disaster events uh, that we've seen in particular around Forbes and around the Cabon Shire. I was only in Ugara last Friday and saw that devastation for myself and working directly with mayors and general managers trying to identify how we reconnect communities, how we fill potholes, how we work together over the course of the next few months uh, to keep our regional New South Wales moving but to make sure that the communities that are impacted by these flooding events uh, are supported uh, and that we bring in the resources as they're needed. The cost, to be frank, is uh, is unknown right right here today, and the cost is not an over you know is not a huge concern to me today. Uh, we will have to manage it within our budget. What is important is that we have extra plant and machinery arriving in the region next week, and we have crews and contractors coming from across the state from areas that don't require those resources right now. Uh, and we do this in a way that we don't have unlimited resources, but we do have resources that can be moved. We're going to reallocate some resources in the short term to make sure that we have the boots on the ground to back council in, to clean up, to fill potholes, to restore council roads where possible and to work with them. Um, but at the same time, we have a significant amount of work to do when the waters recede on our state roads and highways. As I've always said, we have a wet summer approaching. We have uh, obviously harvest that will be one of the latest harvests uh, we've seen in history. Uh, and we have the Christmas and summer holidays fast approaching where we have families on the road travelling throughout the state, in particular regional New South Wales. I want to make sure these communities are connected, the roads are safe, the potholes are filled and we keep this state moving. Uh, and obviously our state highways has taken, have taken an absolute battering and we want to make sure we've got uh, not only this 200 strong crew here to support the region, but this is on top of the 80 new full-time positions that Transport for New South Wales is in the marketplace employing additional crews to be rolled out across the far west, central west and northwest of the state. New South Wales Minister for Regional Transport and Roads, Sam Faraway, talking about those uh, additional 200 crew members who are going to assist with repairs in regional areas uh, because of the flood damage to the road network. It's 20 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. Still with flooding impacts and rice growers in the state, Riverina are desperately trying to plant crops as heavy rain and flooding has reduced the window to sow. As Romy Stevens reports, some areas have got less than 40% of their intended rice in and there are growers with about 400 acres of crop under flood water. 
Southern New South Wales rice grower Michael Chalmers paints a grim picture of how this year's rice sowing season is looking. Last year was a fantastic year, probably the best year I've ever seen for, for growing rice and this year's the, the polar opposite and I'm sure that um, Sunrise probably um, hoped that this year would be a chance to rebuild reserves and um, really capitalise on water availability so it'll be a bit of disappointment I would say given that yeah the window is, is closing, um, there's, there's a limit to how late you know, people will, will grow rice even with the short season varieties that are available so um, no certainly um, not great. Is there a flow-on effect to consumers, particularly considering how big of a role the Riverina plays in the country's rice production? I, I can't see the domestic consumer being affected by this. Um, I think that that market will be, will be covered. I think our, um, our export markets probably, you know, there will be an effect given that there, there is a, you know, a global rice shortage at the moment. So there is that concern as well, I guess. While the Warcool grower managed to get half his rice sown before the start of October, some of it was underwater for up to three weeks. He says it's established, but being underwater for that long should have killed it. It's back out of water again now. It's, it's drill-sown rice, which ironically doesn't want to be underwater until about the end of November. So it's, it's um, struggling along and we've since been able to plant one more paddock, um, which has gone in fairly rough. And it's, that's a pretty common story, talking to different people, talking to my neighbours and, and different people. People just uh, really want to get the rice in um, and are putting it in any way they can. So flying rice into flooded paddocks without fertiliser or, or weed control, which if that's how, how it's got to be done, then yeah, that's what we'll do. The president of the Rice Growers Association of Australia, Peter Herman, says the impacts of heavy rain have varied depending on where growers are. So if you're higher in a valley, the Murrumbidgee Valley or the Murray Valley, then chances are you've had windows of opportunity to sow your, your rice crop. Now across the industry, most growers have some of their crop in and some growers have all of their intended crop in. Now, some poor families are in a situation where they haven't had the opportunity, despite their best preparation, to sow any rice crop this year. And we're thinking of them. We're hoping hoping things can um, you know, be shuffled around so that um, they can make the most of the season, perhaps with their winter crop or, um, or even the late chance to get a rice crop in. Is there any idea at this stage of what financial losses we're looking at? So there's the opportunity cost of crops that aren't going to be sown and then there's the terribly distressing circumstances of losing crops that were so close and that we had invested so much of our, uh, of our money in to um, produce with uh, higher fertiliser prices and, and other challenges. So each family are in a different circumstance and at the moment we're still in damage control mode. So counting our losses is is something we probably do in the middle of the night when we'd prefer to be sleeping. Back in Warcool, Michael Chalmers, who's also chair of the local Rice Growers Association branch, says while he's doing OK, things aren't looking great for others. You have to say that somewhere between 20 and 40% of the, the intended rice area has gone in. Talking to a, a good friend down the road, he's lost um, about 400 acres of rice under flood water and um, it's been underwater for about a month, so... Um, you, you wouldn't expect that to survive even if it came out of water um, soon and uh, people are getting rice in any way they can but um, also being distracted by, um, you know, by the flooding and, and by working on flood banks and, and trying to remove the, uh, the rainfall runoff from, from cereal crops as well. 
Peter Herman says the unfavourable conditions have come as a big blow considering the investment that was put into this year's crop, particularly due to high fertiliser costs. It's not about getting ahead this year. It's it's one of those marking time years where, um, oh look, some people, Romy, some people have lost their whole winter crop. You know, it's it's like a drought year only. It's the tragedy is we've invested so much to get to where we have. So, look, we'll buckle up and we'll figure out what resources we've got, and um, there'll be another season come around. And um, people are resilient because we have to be, and we stick together. So that's what we've done as growers and producers, and we'll keep doing that. That's Peter Herman from the Rice Growers Association of Australia finishing that story from Romy Stevens. It's 26 past 12. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the federal government says it's taking accusations of widespread fraud in the coal industry very seriously. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie used parliamentary privilege yesterday to accuse coal companies operating in Australia of lying about the quality of their coal exports, based on documents he says were given to him by a whistleblower. He alleges that coal exporters were paying bribes and using fraudulent lab results to sell coal, and he said that the documents reveal Australia's export emissions are much higher than claimed. He says the industry has committed fraud to increase profits and avoid shipment rejections. Energy Minister Chris Bowen says the government is currently seeking advice from the relevant departments. Hunter MP Dan Rapicioli told the ABC's Cecilia Connell the Australian Securities and Investment Commission is working on a report. We take all allegations seriously, as any government should, and no matter what the industry is, we have rules that need to be followed. At the end of the day, um, they're unfounded allegations made by an MP under parliamentary privilege, and we really have to wait for the authorities to look into them and for us to get a briefing from the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. Um, until we have all that information, there's really, right now, they are just allegations. Do you think we need to see more regulation in that space? Uh, no, not just yet. I think we just need to wait to see what the uh, ASIC comes out with and then re, re, uh, re-look at this then. If it does come out that Australian coal exporters have been lying, how could that impact our global reputation? Uh, we will we will look at that into the future. Right now, I'm not willing to comment on that right now because, once again, it is just allegations and I don't think we need to speculate about things that could be and could not be. Dan Rapicioli, the member for Hunter. Now, one of the coal testing companies, ALS, referred itself to police in 2020 over claims that it had faked coal certificates. Despite that, Barnaby Joyce, the MP Barnaby Joyce, is being cautious about commenting about the new claims made yesterday under the protection of Parliament. He's warned about the risks to the coal industry. I hear these, let's see where it goes, but um, my view always is that if we don't have a, you know, we've got to be really careful we don't destroy our coal industry because if you do, Australia's going to be poorer, not just the hunter. You'll be, the hunter will be exceedingly poorer and you'll lose thousands of jobs and the value of your houses will be affected and everything else. But Australia itself will be poorer and we further stresses on our budget and how we pay for the NDIS and pensions and defence, health, police, everything. So, um, I, I'm always a bit sceptical about people who seem to make their job in Parliament to destroy our economy, and they do that by destroying places such as the Hunter.
Um, but Mr Wilkie says that he was, um, you know, given these documents from within the industry, um, if that's the case, then, you know, shouldn't there be some sort of level of investigation into these claims? And I'm sure there will be. But, you know, we have investigations to things all the time. It doesn't mean that what's claimed is the truth. That's yet to be determined and be determined outside the parliament, not in the parliament. You, you just don't know. There's so many possibilities. It can be maliciously motivated in people delivering certain information which is later proven not to be correct. It might be true. We don't know. If you really believed it was ironclad truth, you wouldn't make it in parliament. You'd go outside and have a press conference and read out verbatim your allegation and make it. And, of course, if you're wrong, the next person you'll hear from is uh, a solicitor saying we're taking it to court because it's not the truth. Let's see uh, MP Barnaby Joyce, National Party MP Barnaby Joyce. Now, the CEO of the Minerals Council of Australia, Tanya Constable, issued a statement to say Australia's export coal products are amongst the best in the world and have been highly sought after for decades by customers seeking a long-term, reliable supply of a high-quality product. Ongoing shipments to regular customers over many decades reflect positively on the general quality of Australia's export coal trade. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to half past 12. The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, we were hoping to uh, get some uh, news headlines and uh, also uh, having some trouble getting onto the uh, Bureau of Meteorology at the moment as well. So they might be having some phone problems too. So uh, why don't we look at the issue of uh, water in the Murray-Darling Basin because it's uh, been 10 years since the Murray-Darling Basin plan legislation was signed into law. To mark the occasion, a key speech marking progress of the plan is being given at lunchtime in Canberra today and there's a few surprises contained in that speech as well. Warwick Long spoke about uh, what's in it to ABC Rules uh, Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan. Well, today we're going to hear from Andrew McConville, who's the Chief Executive Officer at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Um, Of course, the authority has the task of implementing the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which I see the the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, has referred to today as the most important piece of water policy in Australia's history. The Murray-Darling Basin Plan sets out how water is shared in Australia's largest river network. And $13 billion of taxpayer funds has been set aside to see this plan implemented. Marking that anniversary today is Andrew McConville, who's only appointed CEO of the Basin Authority earlier this year. In fact, it was in the dying days of the final parliament, um, the former Water Minister Keith Pitt appointed Mr McConville. He'd previously worked as a lobbyist with APIA, the oil and gas lobby group. Today will be a chance to hear from him almost sort of for the first time really. Yeah, coalition appointee now working under a Labor government at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which is an, an organisation that hasn't been without controversy. What are you expecting to hear from Mr McConville today? We've seen a little excerpt of his presentation where he's going to focus heavily on the role of First Nations people and the role that First Nations knowledge can contribute to management of Australia's rivers, basically putting a case to say that First Nations need to be more involved or or managers need to listen more to First Nations. Of course, the oldest living cultures certainly knows a thing or two about how to survive on this driest continent. So I think he'll really press that point. He's also going to refer to CSIRO modelling of river inflows and the impact that climate change will have 
on the the Murray Darling Basin network pointing to the probability or, or one probability that the rivers could see a 30% reduction in inflows by 2050, which is coming around fast enough. That's something he'll he'll look to highlight. And we're hoping that he might give an update on the amount of water that's still to be recovered or reallocated to the environment in the river to come from they're called Sidland projects, but we know that some of these projects like the Menindee Lakes and, and Yanko are running well and truly behind. And we're hoping that we'll get an update on those figures today. So an Andrew McConville address at the Press Club. Tanya Plibersek's written a few pieces marking the 10-year anniversary today. I've noted Tony Burke, former water minister, has been doing the same. How do you think other areas of the basin and different people who have been involved of the in the development of the basin plan will be marking its 10-year anniversary today? Well, some of them, unfortunately, will be marking it with flooded crops and flooded homes. Um, I guess it's cruel, work that the system's in flood at the moment and we're talking about managing the system so that it can survive in years of drought. But, uh, look, you don't have to go far to find a detractor of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. There's plenty of people who think that it doesn't go far enough and there are others who say that too much water has been um, taken out of the consumptive pool or taken out of industry or farming to go to the environment. Yeah, I'd imagine not a lot of cakes marking this anniversary. <laughs> Kath Sullivan, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Was And happy MDBP legislation anniversary to you. That's our Parliament House reporter, Kath Sullivan, there. And uh, you can actually see the press club. It should have just started on ABC TV uh, just a few minutes ago. Let's find out what else is uh, making the news. Jamel Wells is here. Good afternoon. Michael, good afternoon. The Premier, Dominic Perrottet, says he'll work with insurance companies to ensure people in flood-prone areas can continue to be covered in the event of another disaster. The Greens and Crossbench have done a deal with the federal government to pass legislation to make electric cars cheaper. The electric car discount policy was a Labor election promise which removes certain duties and tax from low emissions vehicles. Industry experts are putting the health risks of gas cooking at the centre of their pitch to get rid of gas in kitchens around the world. A coalition of chefs, doctors, climate activists and real estate developers say gas cooking is harmful for the environment and human health. Hospitals in Indonesia are struggling to treat the hundreds injured after yesterday's powerful earthquake that killed more than 160 people. And the US Supreme Court will hear a dispute involving whiskey maker Jack Daniels and a dog toy. The alcohol company is bringing a case against a plastic toy maker that has modelled a squeaky toy based on a signature bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> My dog would like that. <laughs> of course. Yeah, absolutely, I'd love that. So would my dog as well. <laughs> Christmas stocking filler. <laughs> Might be illegal. <laughs> Soon to be illegal. Why? I don't know what David and Goliath, but why are they worrying about that sort of thing? Oh. Are they, they want the rights to trademark it? Yeah, trademark. Jack Daniels' yeah. trademark. But, yeah. They, they just wish they'd thought of it first. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right. Thanks for that, Jamel. You'll be back at one o'clock. It's uh, coming up to uh, 24 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Jake Phillips at the Bureau finally managed to get hold of you. So your phones are still on the blink. Yes, unfortunately, Michael. It seems oh. to be a bit of a pattern of recent times. So yes. we do have people looking into it and trying to work out exactly why. But, right. Uh, 
probably as yet it remains an issue. <laughs> probably not enough people by the sound of things. <laughs> it's been well. a while. So I, I thought it was just because you didn't want to talk to the country hour anymore because there was more rain on the way. So <laughs> well, <laughs> we've always got time for you, Mike. Always. <laughs> but there isn't any rain on the way, which is a positive thing. Although there's a maybe some rain in the north, but not too much, hopefully. Yeah, fortunately, the, the current outlook period is looking reasonably dry, particularly in uh, relative terms from what we've been seeing lately. Mm. So uh, fairly windy at the moment, though, and uh, as it has been for the last couple of days, and that's due to a few low pressure, uh, a few cold fronts, rather, which have been moving across to the south of the state in the last few days. And the last one of those cold fronts is going to clear the state later today or tonight. And after that, we'll be under the influence of high pressure for the next uh, few days, through to the end of the week at least. So in the short term, the only um, rainfall we're looking at is a couple of showers on western slopes of the southern tablelands, mainly down around the Alpine area, and indeed some more snow showers today as there has been yesterday. And that'll be the pattern again tomorrow. Just a slight risk of a thunderstorm around the northern tablelands tomorrow and again on Thursday. On Thursday, we could even see a thunderstorm on the southern tablelands as well, but on both tomorrow and Thursday, any storms that we do see will be quite isolated and not anticipating anything severe. Um, by the time we get to the end of the week, just a couple of showers perhaps, perhaps lingering near the coast. And we do expect that another trough will start to show some influence uh, on the weekend. So at this stage, Sunday is looking like it uh, will see a return to unsettled conditions in parts of the state, particularly the central and eastern parts. So some showers and thunderstorms returning there on Sunday. And then lingering as the system moves up towards the northeast on Monday, maybe even into Tuesday early next week. A little bit of a way off yet, so it's hard to say with certainty, but uh, from Sunday and through Monday at this stage is looking a bit unsettled. Good news is, and obviously it's early days, but good news is that the rainfall totals don't look to be too significant yeah, at this stage. Yeah, that's right. We were talking to Neil Fraser yesterday. He saw 10 maybe, 10 maybe millimetres, maybe 20 at the, yeah. at the most, but even then that's quite uncertain, and it's, it's sort of he was saying, you know, looking more to the to lesser rather than more. Yes, I, th I think that's the case. That's still the way it's shaping up. So mm. good news there. Obviously, at the moment, a lot of areas are, are very sensitive, so we're, we're highly aware that any rainfall is, is a nuisance in some places. Um, uh, but it's, it's good news that we're not seeing any signs at this stage of high totals. So, so people can in the north uh, then don't get any rain. They can continue moving towards harvest, which I, I gather people are hoping to do fairly soon if they have started a right. few pockets here and there. So, and it, so it, it may generally stay fine. It's, that certainly seems to be what you're looking at. Yeah, for most areas, a, a little bit unsettled, as I say, but uh, nothing too dramatic on the on the outlook at this at this stage. So, compared to what we've been seeing recently, it's mm. it's relatively good news. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let, let's hope it continues. And warmer weather as well, or not? Not really so much. No, I think you might have. We might have lost Jake Phillips there from the bureau. Ten degrees. Oh, there, but, you're there. It's just sort of you cut out a bit there. Yes, sorry. Uh, yes, it's a bad line, isn't it? <laughs> what, but, um, <laughs> what about the temps again, sorry? Yeah, so today we're seeing temperatures on the cool side, particularly inland, uh, well below average for this time of year. But we'll be on a gradual warming trend through the next few days. So by the time we get to, to th uh, Thursday, we'll start uh, cracking the 30-degree mark again in the northwest. And by Saturday, well into the mid to high 30s through a, a large part of the west. So on a warming trend. Okay, Jake. Thanks for that. Thanks, Michael. Jake Phillips at the Bureau. It's 20 minutes to one. 
You're with Michael Condon for the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the US is likely to be looking for even more beef from global markets over the next three years as its own domestic production declines and declines quite a bit due to their long-running drought. And Australia is among the major global beef export nations that could be helping to fill that gap. But there are many production constraints in the world's beef-producing nations, as we know, as we've been talking about on the program in the last few months or so. Rabobank analyst Angus Gidley-Baird says international markets will struggle to meet the gap left by the US beef downturn, potentially leading to an increase in global beef prices as that US drought drags on into a fourth year. Yeah, it is. continues to be dry. Uh, it, it, is, it is odd. Speaking to our global colleagues at the moment, uh, we're talking La Nina here, which is obviously wet. Uh, over there, it's very dry. So, yeah, upwards in the order of about half of that US beef herd is in a dry or drought-affected area at the moment, which is leading to increased levels of, of liquidation of their cow herd. And that's, uh, that dry has been dragging on for a number of years. It has. Yes, yeah, and we've seen the the female cow or the female cow fuel uh, increase. Uh, basically, it started ticking up sort of in 2019. It was it was reaching that stage where there are a large number of cattle in the system anyway. But yeah, it's really just continued to rise over the last couple of years. And that means that they won't be able to supply their traditional markets. That that will be the case. Yeah, their production levels, you know, anticipate when when they get through this seasonal condition, we'll we'll move into a rebuild phase, and that will mean their production levels drop. That'll mean that their export volumes to you know key competing markets like Australia that, that Australia sends to you know, Japan, South Korea, and China will will all drop as well. So that must be well. Uh, bad news for them. Good news for us, and probably good news for Brazil, Argentina. Yep. Yeah, good news for all the other exporters out there. Uh, I think, you know, probably favours Australia a little bit more than Brazil and Argentina, well, Brazil in particular. I mean, Brazil's got a, a very uh, a, a competitive price product in, in large volumes and it's really, you know, sort of dominating that China space at the moment. But from an Australian point of view, you know, less volume out of the US will, will probably have a real benefit for us into markets like Japan and South Korea and the US as well. They'll, they'll need a lot of their own or a lot of, of beef themselves after they, they stop killing their cows. They'll be looking for a lot of lean trimmings, which Australia has traditionally been a big supplier of. So does that mean like more mincemeat or more steak? Yeah, more more ground beef, mincemeat. Yeah, that goes into their burger trade over there. They'll uh, they'll be needing that lean trimmings to offset their fatter trim that comes out of their feedlot um, sector, and yeah, to to create that that perfect burger. So we'd anticipate, you know, we, we're seeing female slaughter numbers in the US at the moment, similar to the levels we saw back in eleven twelve, uh, back in thirteen fourteen when they were going through the the height of their rebuild. We saw those global beef prices lift by a huge number. The lean trimmings, global lean pr- trimmings price lifted by 50% in the space of about five months. So um, we're potentially staring down the barrel of something similar again, um, most likely towards the end of 23, possibly into 2024, so, if the season changes. So good, yeah, good news for Australian producers as long as they're not still hit by floods. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was just doing some quick numbers on it, looking at it. I, you know, Australian cattle prices back in third, well, in fourteen. So between June fourteen and September two thousand and fourteen, and we'll all remember that it was very dry back then as well. Um, cattle prices. This is the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator. Jumped thirty percent. 
in the space of those months, despite the fact that we were in probably described as a drought condition ourselves, but that US market was just pulling all global beef prices up, um, which flowed through to our cattle prices. So, yeah, it, it's it's some positive news on the, on the horizon in terms of what could potentially play out over the next couple of years for the global beef market. And the floods, you know, subside and that turns to grass, I guess. So that has to be one way of looking at it. Definitely, definitely. Uh, it's, it's setting us up well for this year and I think it's part of the reason why we continue to see very strong cattle prices here in Australia. That producer, you know, is buoyed by the fact that he's got good soil moisture profiles, um, good pasture Too good. Conditions. <laughs> Too good. Too much. I, I, I'd agree. I'd agree. Although the livestock guys are probably a little bit more fortunate than some of the cropping guys that yep. can't get a tractor on there at the moment. But, um, yeah, yeah, generally it makes it difficult getting on to, to you know, muster stock and send them into to market, etc. no doubt. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it, it works in their favour and should hopefully set up a good 12 months. Yeah, looking longer term, it's it's better. Now, the other thing is a good time for us to have better trade relations with China by the looks of things. Yeah, hopefully. Cross our fingers. I mean, a number of plants have still not actually got their export licence back to China after being shut out in 2020. So hopefully better trade relationships might lead to those being re-established again, which would, would be great. You know, anything that can, can afford greater trade access into, you know, China being the biggest global beef importer in the world would be a good thing. Well, the analysts are saying it's not going to be a, like it's not going to, they're not going to be opening the floodgates, but it'll be a slow trickle back to sort of normality. Yeah, I, I'd agree. Um, I mean, we, we're not really in a position to go and kill a whole lot more cattle and send a whole lot more beef to China anyway. Um, we've got limited livestock numbers on the ground. We've got challenges with workforce and, and labour availability. We've got increasing costs from a processing point of view. We're not we're not selling the cheapest beef in the world. Um, so, yeah, you wouldn't imagine it'll open the floodgates, but it does provide longer term. If we've got that access, we'll be able to, to send volumes into that market as our numbers and cattle numbers in, in Australia increase, which will be good. Angus Gidley-Baird is a Rabobank analyst. It's coming up to 14 to 1. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Looking at some of the texts that are coming in, someone's texted in to remind us that uh, we've also seen the biggest flooding ever on at Canago on the Billabong Creek and all the properties in that area as well. Uh, but we've got a comment from Jeff who's saying, when will the ABC realise it's not climate change but the weather? He says uh, as big a flood as uh, 70 years ago proves that the weather can repeat itself. That's how forecasts are worked out. But uh, Mick has sent in a text as well on that issue saying the scientists were deliberately ignored when they predicted the extreme climate change. By, by They were ignored by the previous leaders and they will hopefully be made to answer for their... Uh, 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 pretty uh, pretty uh, hopeless responses to that, according to Mick. It's uh, coming up to 13 minutes to one. And we've also got some texts on the roads as well. Uh, Luz has texted in to say it's a concern that the minister is talking about the filling of potholes uh, and uh, saying that our country road network actually needs similar amounts of money to be spent on that that was spent on the Pacific Highway upgrade. So we should be looking, Luz says we should be looking to upgrade and rebuild roads, not not just uh, putting the money into filling the potholes. So that's just uh, some of the texts that are coming in on the text line at the moment. Uh, and there's a few more there, but I uh, won't get a chance to read them all. 
It's uh, coming up to uh, 11 minutes to one. Surely we'll be heading to market information, but before we do that, Japanese encephalitis. Well, it's been identified in pigs in the Murray region just in the last couple of days. JE caused two deaths in humans, of course, earlier this year, and the authorities are very concerned about the risk to mosquito-borne diseases on workers as well. There's also been a warning coming out of Queensland, the uh, Queensland Health uh, officials warning about concerns about mosquitoes and Japanese encephalitis there. I spoke to Agriculture Minister Dougal Saunders about the issue and the latest outbreak just a short time ago. Yeah, look, at this stage what we know is that there, there has been a detection of JE in three young female pigs in that Murray River region. There were some clinical signs that were, were shown, um, i.e. Um, abortion and stillbirth over the last couple of weeks um, as part of an ongoing surveillance for the virus. Um, the good news is we've had no detected cases of JE in, in people, in residents so far. Um, but of course, in that Murray River area, we're encouraging all local community members to take measures to protect themselves. Uh, and that means, you know, doing all the right thing as far as what sort of clothes you're wearing and applying repellent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also um, making sure you're vaccinated against the virus too. But I guess the thing is workers, pig workers, particularly farm workers, are most at risk. They absolutely are, and that's why we've, we've had a bit of a campaign for a while now, uh, and, and some of those higher-risk areas have been eligible for a, a Japanese encephalitis vaccine now for quite some time. We've ramped that up now to 41 local government areas, and we've really been focusing on, number one, people who work or move pigs, work in piggeries or, or transport pigs, uh, but then really anyone who works outside more than a couple of hours a day have been very much on the top of the list as well, and we're really trying to ramp that message up now that we do want people who are actively engaged with livestock and particularly pigs to make sure they're doing everything they can to protect themselves. But because it's serious it can make you really sick or it can kill you. Yeah absolutely I mean we had um, sadly a, a you know a number of deaths uh, earlier on this year and end of last year in that mosquito season uh, after we saw it come down into southern New South Wales for the first time ever on, on storms and you know the expectation is given the the, just the rapid uh, increase in mozzie numbers and they are significantly increasing at the moment they're breeding like mozzies and they are large and they're they're really active so you know we know there is a significant risk this year as opposed to even last year so we want to be on top of that we want to get that messaging out there we do want people also monitoring stock uh, and we want people to report that if there's any sort of signs of high temperatures or jaundice or um, you know those neurological signs um, uncoordination or impaired vision of stock looking like they're very wobbly, then there is that emergency animal disease hotline, which is one eight hundred six seven five triple eight to report in on. Now, the other thing too is that uh, Queensland also put out a warning today, I think, the Queensland Health Officer, about Japanese encephalitis. So a lot of mosquitoes around, a lot of floodwaters around. So obviously, basically all of New South Wales should be on alert. It really should be, and we've got a similar type of, of warning out from our health minister and also our regional health minister, and specifically, I guess, alerting people to the fact that you know, you, you do need to take some sort of measures if you are working with animals, but also just if you're spending time outside, you need to think about repellent, which has got a high level of DEET in it, wearing long sleeves and long pants, all of those sort of things, trying to minimise being near stagnant water, um, you know, making sure you've got screens on your, your windows and doors at home, uh, and also not going out uh, at dusk and dawn when they might be most active. So there's a, a lot of ways you can try and minimise that, and of course trying to book in to get a Japanese 
you know, encephalitis vaccination. So it's, it's a GP. It's also a pharmacist that we've up, upskilled now to be able to do this. Uh, and also there are lots of different free vaccination clinics happening. Uh, there's one, for example, in Canamble tomorrow. There's been one at Coonabarabra and there's been at Warren and they're all over the Western region and, and Wagga Wagga and Albury are having some as well. So check with your local health district because there are vaccination clinics available, but pharmacists and GPs as well if you can't get into a clinic. Agriculture Minister Dougald Saunders talking about the latest outbreak of Japanese encephalitis amongst pigs in the Murray region. Time for markets. First up, let's go to Wodonga and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. 1,088 cattle sold to the usual buying group. However, not all operated or operated fully. Quality was quite mixed and buyers were extremely selective over all categories, causing some big price fluctuations along the way. Buyers really did struggle to find a base price. Uh, generally, the market sold 25 to 50 cents cheaper. Veal, 4.30 to 5.46. Yielding trade heifers, 3.80 to 4.60. Feeder heifers, medium weight, 3.62 to 4.50. Feeder steers, medium weight, 4.30 to 4.90. Trade steers, 4.25 to 5.12. Heavy steers, $4 to 4.92, with a penny euro steers out to $5 and 2. Bullocks, 3.70 to 4.11. Heifers with shape, 3.76 to 4.05. Cows were back again. The heavy end, 3.30 to 3.52, falling 25. The middle run were hardest hit, 2.40 to 2.74. Leanne Dux, MLA. Let's go to Forbes Sheep and Lambs, Crystal Ridley. With no sale for the last fortnight due to flooding in the area, agents yarded 18,850 head. There was 14,300 lambs penned and quality was mixed with both well-finished and plainer off types on offer. The usual bars are present competing in a market that was firmed at dearer on the better lambs but eased on the plate at secondary lines. There was 4,200 new season lambs penned and trade weights 20 to 24 kilos sold from 163 to 213. Heavy and extra heavy weights ranged in price from 212 to 200 $165 ahead. Old lambs followed the same trend with better lambs attracting strong competition. Trade weights receiving from 150 to 209. Heavy lambs to 26 kilos sold from 209 to 235, with extra heavies 220 to 295. There was 4,500 mutton pen with merinos making up the majority. Quality was mixed and prices similar to the previous sale. Merino ewes range from 98 to 173. My crossbred ewes received from 101 to 168. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. Let's go to Carcor Cattle now, Doug Robson. There was a much larger yarding of 1,630 head compared to 477 last week. There was a good numbers of feed to cattle and cows were also well supplied. Quality was good in a cheaper market, with feeder cattle down by 20 to 30 cents. Medium-weight feeder steers sold from 420 to 493 cents, and heavy feeder steers 390 to 475. Feeder heifers 400 to 470, trade heifers up to 430. Not veal steer sold up to 650 cents to restock. There was a few pens of bullocks and steers, and they ranged from 400 to 430 cents to process, while grown heifers were up to 30 cents cheaper. They sold from 320 to 410, feeders up to 430. Cow market was substantially cheaper, by 30 to 35 cents. Three score cows averaged 310 cents, heavy cows 315 to 336, and best of the heavy bulls, 320 cents. Doug Robson, a CTLX. Let's go to Gunnedah cattle now. 
Good afternoon. Producers opted out with the outing that increased by 2,000 head to 2,820. All categories well represented. Quality was generally good as was condition. The usual buyers in attendance. Not all processes or feedlots operated. Cheaper trends for the light and medium weight yearling steers as much as 20 cents a kilo with lightweight restockers 450 to 610 and up to 700 cents for weaners. Medium weight yearlings 402 to 550 cents. Heavy feeders firm 430 to 490. Light and medium weight heifers also cheaper more so on the lightweights 325 to 534 with medium weights 350 to 522. Heavy heifers were 8 to 20 cents cheaper 370 to 472 cents. Heavy ground steers over 500 kilos to process remained firm 370 to 425. Three and Four score ground heifers to process 310 to 390. The heavy cow market was as much as 25 cents cheaper, with three and four scores 288 to 324 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Canada. Let's go to Inverell cattle now and Stephen Adams. Good afternoon, Inverell pen 568 extra to offer 1229 mixed cattle, with yearling cattle and cows in the majority. Most exporters, backgrounders and feeders attended to a cheaper market with cows experiencing the major major correction. Wednesday is to 576, heifers 532 to 588, restockers accounted for the light yearling steers 432 to 586. Light feeders were cheaper but sold strongly for the better types 498 to 590, with the lesser quality drafts considerably cheaper. Medium feeders sold to cheaper trends 300 to 510, very heavy feeders to 440. Similar results with light heifers to restockers taking the better bred types, 400 to 510. Light feeders, 482 to 512. Medium feeder heifers, 400 to 490. To see a slightly dearer trend and heavy, fe- heavy heifers to feed, 344 to 420. Very heavy ground steers to process, slightly dearer to 360. Heifers, 330 to 365. Back slightly with the top drafts, selling strongly. Cows sold to cheaper trends of 30 cents for most classes. Medium weights 220 to 300, heavy cows 317 to 338, and bulls to 290. Stephen Adams, MLA at Inverell. Let's go to Carcourt cattle now, Doug Robson. There was a much larger yarding of 1,630 head compared to 477 last week. There was a good numbers of feed to cattle and cows were also well supplied. Quality was good in a cheaper market, with feeder cattle down by 20 to 30 cents. Medium weight feeder steers sold from 420 to 493 cents, and heavy feeder steers 390 to 475. Feeder heifers 400 to 470, trade heifers up to 430. Not veal steer sold up to 650 cents to restock. There was a few pens of bullocks and steers, and they ranged from 400 to 430 cents to process, while grown heifers were up to 30 cents cheaper. They sold from 320 to 410, feeders up to 430. Cow market was substantially cheaper, by 30 to 35 cents. Three score cows averaged 310 cents, heavy cows 315 to 336, and best of the heavy bulls, 320 cents. Doug Robson, a CTLX. And that's the market information for today. You've been listening to The Country Hour. We're back tomorrow between 12 and 1. We'll talk to you then. It's heading up to news time.